following is a message given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 25th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. All right, good morning, Redemption Hill. I don't know whether you realize this or not, but it doesn't really matter whether or not you grew up in the church hearing the stories of the Bible on a weekly basis. A lot of the Bible's teaching has made its way into popular culture, into the way that we speak. For instance, if, if you heard the story of someone who, who went out of their way to help or care for someone else, you, you might refer to them as a good Samaritan. If you hear someone being referred to as a good Samaritan, you, you begin to think of someone who naturally was merciful and helpful and, and who went out of their own way to, to do good for someone else. In fact, all 50 states and the District of Columbia all have their own version of good Samaritan laws. They word them differently, they frame them differently, but, but everyone has them. And these good Samaritan laws, in fact, served as the backdrop for one of, if not the most, highly anticipated series finale in network television history. I'm dating myself a little bit, but I gathered together back in 1998 with a bunch of my friends for a watch party as we gathered together to watch the series finale of Seinfeld, where we saw Jerry and George and Elaine and Kramer find themselves in Latham, Massachusetts, walking down the street where they observe a man being carjacked, and rather than trying to actually help the man, they film the man being carjacked with their camcorder while they mock him and, and laugh at him. And according to the Good Samaritan law there in Massachusetts, they, they were arrested and, and put in prison. And for the rest of the finale, we saw previous character after character coming as, as testimony, as character witnesses about these people that we had watched for nine years. And, and we were reminded of just how selfish and self-interested they were for so long. And at the end of that trial, the judge declared their callous indifference and utter disregard for everything that is good and decent has rocked the very foundations upon which our society is built. In typical Seinfeld fashion throughout the finale, there were efforts at self-justification I mean, who was I supposed to help? Was I obligated to help that person? Under, under what circumstance was I supposed to help that person? But we just see over and over throughout the end of the show, it, it really wasn't about who they were obligated to help, but it was about what kind of people they actually were. And I remember the show so vividly as I was getting ready for our time together this morning because that show is very eerily similar to parts of our text this morning. You see, we all have a level of familiarity with the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and so this morning, I want to make sure that you and I see this story rightly in its context. I'll never forget being taught years ago as I was learning how to read and study the Bible. I was, I was taught something that a man named D.A. Carson said his father taught him. Carson is one of the preeminent theologians of our day. His dad was a, a country pastor. And when he was a, a teenager and helping Carson learn to read the Bible, he told him this. He said, he said, son, any Bible text that you read apart from its context will become a pretext for a proof text. Let me, say, let me say it another way. Anytime you and I take a passage of the Bible like the Good Samaritan this morning and we try to understand it apart from the context that it's in in the Bible, our hearts naturally begin to make that story the foundation or the pretext for whatever we want it to say. We begin to proof text it and, and see in it what we want to see and hear. And there are many layers to this story and, and everybody claims this story as the ground and the foundation for their thing and for their desire and for their issue. But this morning, I want you and I to understand this story like the, the big E on the I chart, the context that it's in. Because until we see the big E on the I chart, all the little pieces below it, they don't matter. If we can't see the big one, we're not going to be able to make proper sense of everything else. 
And so this morning, we're just going to journey through this story. Take a, take a journey through this story like my family did down the Blue Ridge Parkway for part of this summer. And we're going to pull off to the side and, and take a look at the views that were there. We're going to get back on and, and try to understand this thing. So if you've got your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 25 where the scene is set for us. Verse 25 says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you've got to see it in your mind, Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, and that day he would have been seated, and, and those that were listening to him, his students more than likely were seated around him. That was the posture of how this teaching was done. But when someone wanted to ask a question about what was being taught, they didn't raise their hands like we do in school today. They would stand up out of a show of respect for their teacher. So Jesus has got people around him. He is teaching. He's most likely seated. They're most likely sitting around him, and a man stands up to ask Jesus a question. He was a, a lawyer, Luke says. And when you read that, you, you can't think lawyer like today, not criminal lawyer, contract lawyer, bankruptcy lawyer, prosecutor, defender, th- th- not that kind of lawyer per se. He was a lawyer theologian. You see, under the power of Rome, when Rome would occupy a particular territory, they would often allow a pretty good amount of local autonomy to the people that they were occupying. God's people were governed by God's law. Their order, their society, their culture was ordered by and ordered around God's law. This man was a theologian with a particular knowledge of the law. But because the law of God is what the society was ordered around, he was kind of like a a lawyer theologian. And when you think about the law, that which ordered the life of God's people, you've got to understand that when God's people would think of the law and talk about the law, they would think of something that was beautiful and orderly and wise and good and and safe. It It was for them. Think about how how David speaks of the law in Psalm 119 or or Psalm 19, how beautiful the law is to him, how it's his meditation day and night, how, how sweet the law of God is to his mouth like honey from a honeycomb. The law of God shaped the moral life of God's people and that shape, those edges, those contours came from God himself and were a reflection of God himself. And where God's law did not order life, there was lawlessness. There were the nations around them, the lawless ones who would offer their children as sacrifices to idols, exploit the weak and the vulnerable amongst them. Amongst God's people, those who did not order their life by God's law, the betraying ones like the tax collectors, The prostitutes, the sinners, where God's law did not order the life of God's people, there was lawlessness. But when God's people overall thought about God's law, what they thought about was the order and the beauty and the safety and the goodness that it brought. So this lawyer, listening to Jesus, stands, but not out of a show of respect for Jesus, he's standing very clearly, Luke tells us, to test Jesus. And he says to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So naturally there in the question, there is the assumption that eternal life is something that he can earn, something that he can gain by what he does. And so he wants Jesus to be very clear about what that is, It's not because he doesn't have an answer in his mind, we'll see. It's because he's seeking to test Jesus. You see, Jesus seems to be attracting and welcoming people who seem to have a high disregard for God's law or at least disobey it. And so this lawyer, probably with some of his friends, have a suspicion about just how serious this Jesus is about the law of God. He's trying to catch the author of the law, contradicting his very law. You see, grace has made this lawyer nervous. 
which is a funny thing because someone who's so intimately familiar and have mastered in his mind and seemingly in his life the law of God that orders his life and orders his heart has somehow missed that the grace of God and the law of God have been intertwined throughout the Old Testament. They're not separate things. In fact, the Ten Commandments, the the order of God's law in the Ten Commandments, the, the first thing there that we find is the grace of God towards his people that gives context for his ordering of their life and heart. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Because of who I am and my grace towards you, here is my command, here is my law, a reflection of my character to order your life for my glory and your joy. The grace and the law of God have been intertwined throughout all of time. But this lawyer is nervous by the grace he sees in Jesus. Jesus seems to be living out the grace and truth of God in unheard of ways. It's something John will remind us in the very beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 17, where he he says, the law, it came through Moses, but Grace and truth have come through Jesus. Grace has always disturbed the self-righteous pride in our hearts just as the grace of God personified in Jesus relentlessly disturbs the self-righteous and the proud that find themselves around him. And so here's the context being set. This lawyer seeking to test Jesus asks him a question that is vertical in dimension. It's about eternal life. It's about a relationship with God. It's about right standing with God. It's vertical in dimension. And Jesus answers him in verse 26. He answers him with his own question. Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answers the first question with a question. And he begins to change the focus immediately. Seeking to test him, the lawyer wants to know, is Jesus correct about his view of the law? And in Jesus' response, the focus shifts to, well, what do you believe? How do you read it? That was an old rabbinic way of saying, tell me how you read this in the text and support it with the Bible. Tell me what you think, but... Show me where you get it. And that's what the lawyer does. Look at verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He quotes the Bible. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through five, the great Shema. God's people would say it twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. He also puts it together with Leviticus 19, verse 18. This had become the general understanding of the summary of God's law. Love the Lord your God with 100% of who you are 100% of the time. And love your neighbor with the 100% of the energy and the veracity and the joy with which you love yourself. In fact, you could take the Ten Commandments and see that the Ten Commandments, you could split them up. The first four are all about loving the Lord your God with all that you are. The last six are all about loving your neighbor as yourself. This had become the summary of the law. And so Jesus responds in verse 28. He says to this lawyer, you've answered correctly. Do this. I mean, that is a a massive do coming in from Jesus. You're right. Do that and you'll live. In responding to the lawyer, Jesus actually summarizes Leviticus chapter 18, verse five, where the Lord says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. See, Jesus is is responding to this lawyer saying, sure, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Love God with 100% of yourself, 100% of the time. Love your neighbor with all the power and all the mercy, all the eagerness and all the speed with which you give and love yourself 100% of the time. If you want to earn eternal life, go ahead, just do that. But you knew that already, didn't you? See, the lawyer didn't expect Jesus to answer the way that he did. So when Jesus answers him the way that he does, the lawyer is exposed. 
all of a sudden, everyone can see. There wasn't a sincerity behind the question because he already had the answer to the question. He was seeking some other motive. His motive has been exposed. Jesus has agreed with him. And in agreeing with him, not only is his motive behind the question exposed, but his inability to keep the very law he says he must keep in order to have eternal life is exposed. And slowly, the very premise on which his life has been built is starting to get taken out at the knees. So what's he going to do? Will he weep over his inability to keep the very law he says he has to keep in order to do what he has to do to inherit eternal life? Will he weep over his sin and his inability? Or will he do what so many of us do, nearly all of us do, nearly every time we find ourselves exposed and guilty like this? Will he scramble and try to find a way to save face? Will he try to find a way to save face? Well, Luke tells us in verse 29, the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus a second question. Who is my neighbor? First, he sought to test Jesus and trap Jesus, but now he's found himself being trapped by Jesus, which is always a good thing. It's always a good thing for Jesus to trap you, but being trapped by Jesus, he's now trying to justify himself. And as we've seen just over the last few weeks, self-justification is a huge theme in Luke's gospel. We've been dripping it little bit by little bit in the stories that we've been looking at. But we can see in the way he's responding, this lawyer is not hungry for the truth. He's feeling convicted. He may even feel a little bit guilty. And so he does what we all instinctively do when we feel that way. He tries to justify himself. You see, his pride has convinced him that the problem in front of him is not his unwillingness to repent for his failure to keep the law. The problem in front of him was the ambiguity around what the word neighbor actually means. And so in asking this question, he's trying to save face. Life's pretty complicated, Jesus. There's a lot of people out here. Who is it exactly that I have to love? Well, who qualifies as a neighbor here? Better yet, you could ask it this way. Who do I not have to love 100% of the time with 100% of the energy and the mercy that I love myself with? You certainly can't mean the Romans, those Gentiles who are occupying our land. I mean, even amongst our own people, certainly you can't mean the tax collectors. They have betrayed us. They exploit us under the power of Rome. You you can't mean them. You can't mean those Essenes who don't worship like we do anymore. You can't mean those zealots who who think we need to overthrow the Roman government with force. You you certainly can't mean those those half-breed Samaritans. Who exactly do I have to love? You can't mean those Republicans, certainly not those capitalists, hopefully not the transgender ones. Who do I actually have to love? Tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor? That way I'll be sure to go love them. What's the bar for my love? by which I have to leap over in order to inherit eternal life. See, the pride in this man's heart has produced a self-justification around the issue of his lack of love for people that he's decided in his heart he has no obligation to actually love. That could be based on their station in life. That could be based on their theology. That could be based on their economics. That could be based on their ethnicity. You see, pride is the root of his partiality in love. He's asking the question, who do I not have to love? And underneath that question is his pride, which means the answer, the solution to being able to love people 100% of the time with 100% of the love we have for ourselves, the solution 
is a gospel solution because the problem is a heart problem. It's a gospel issue first. That's why we've got to read the text in context because if we don't, it'll become a pretext for our own proof text of what we want to see in it. The context is a question about eternal life. The context is a vertical question first. Who do I have to love and who do I not have to love in order to inherit eternal life? And as we'll see, even Jesus' answer to this question, which first is going to be prefaced by the story, is first a vertical answer before it's ever a horizontal solution. Jesus is now going to answer this second question, but he's going to do it with a question of his own. But before he does, he tells the parable. We're just getting to the parable. So Jesus replies in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now again, this is like any other story or parable that Jesus would tell. Everyone who was listening to him would be familiar with the context of the story he's saying. They would see the sights, they would hear the sounds, they would smell the smells. They all knew this downward descending path from Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 to 18 miles, thousands of feet above sea level down to below sea level. They knew this narrow rocky path that Jesus is talking about. They knew there was a spot on that path that was called the blood pass. It was such a dangerous place. There were so many crevices for bandits to hide out. Maybe this man that Jesus is talking about had gone through the blood pass. Maybe that's where he was jumped. Maybe that's where he was beaten. Maybe that's where he was stripped and abandoned and left for dead. Now those details matter if we're going to understand the story in its context. See, how do you identify what cultural tribe people were a part of at that time? The way that you would understand what part of culture you were a part of was by the language you spoke and, and the clothes that you wore. It's really not much different today. We all have different cultural categories in our mind when we see people dress a certain way or, or speak with a certain dialect. See, in Jesus' day, it wouldn't have been unfamiliar for someone like a priest to speak Hebrew, for a commoner in the region to speak Aramaic, for some Israelites out on the coast to actually speak Phoenician because of the seafaring trade. In Galilee, where so much of Jesus' ministry would take place, it wasn't uncommon for people to speak Greek. If someone was a government official, they would probably speak Latin as well. And all of these different groups dressed differently. Their robes looked a bit different from the other. It's how they distinguished what cultural tribe they were a part of. So here's this man on the side of the road. He's half dead, so he's not sitting up talking to anybody. So you can't hear his dialect. You can't hear his accent. You can't hear his language. You can't immediately tell what culture, what tribe he's part of, and he's laying there naked. They took his clothes because in those days, there were two things you spent your money on, food and clothing. Those were the two most basic necessities. So clothing was an investment. So they would take the clothing because they were, it was an investment of resource. But he's laying there naked, so you can't see what his robes look like. You can't see what his clothes look like. So you've got no idea based on how he speaks and what he says and what he wears, what, what cultural group he's a part of. And so Jesus goes on with the story because they can all see it. All of that right there is in their mind when they hear Jesus begin this story. And so in verse 31, Jesus says, now by chance, and that's Jesus being funny, because listening to him with that lawyer were fellow Israelites who understood the sovereignty of God. God doesn't operate by chance. Jesus is being ironic here. Jesus is a funny dude. Now, now by chance, Jesus says, a priest was going down that road and when he saw this man, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So two religious leaders come by this man, see this man, and pass by on the other side of the road. 
Now, they both have jobs in the temple in Jerusalem. Their, their jobs are a bit different, but they both have jobs. And, and both of their jobs operate on a rotating schedule. So what people would have understood in the context of the story is that this priest and this Levite were both probably leaving Jerusalem, having served their two-week stint in the temple, doing what their job required them to do in the worship of God and heading back to their homes. Jericho was a, a warm and a comfortable place for the wealthier in society to live. Many priests actually had homes in Jericho. This Levite probably would have lived outside past Jericho. Most Levites were farmers. So they were both going home after having served in the temple for a couple of weeks. And they see the man. They can't hear him. He's got no clothes on. No identifying marker. And they go past him. And Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why. I mean, we can come up with reasons why we might go past him. I mean, it would have been physically dangerous for them to stop for sure. Maybe the men that jumped this guy and beat him to death, nearly to death, and stole his clothes are nearby waiting for the next person to come by. Maybe they see this man beaten on the side of the road and they think in their mind, well, he may have deserved it. I, I shouldn't get involved in that one. If I stop to help, they might get me. I mean, they've been gone for two weeks. If they've been in the temple doing their service, they've been gone for two weeks. Now they're headed home. To deal with this man on the side of, ro of the road would delay the plans that they've got in their mind. Their families are probably expecting them home on this day. There's no cell phone. They can't text. They can't let their family know, hey, I'm going to be a little bit late. They've got their own agendas, not just their own danger, but their own delays. And, and then not just that, they, they risk defilement. You know, if you came within six feet of a dead person, you risked becoming defiled by that person. If this priest would have come within six feet of this man on the road to check and see if he was still alive and if he was actually dead, he would be defiled, which means most likely, it wasn't required, but most likely he would return back to Jerusalem to go through another set of purification rites, not go home. And this man's probably beaten so badly. I mean, how can you tell from six feet away if he's actually breathing or not? He might be faced the wrong way. I can't see his chest moving. He's not saying anything. If I get in there and he's actually dead, then what do I do? Their own danger, their, their own delays for their agendas, their own risk of defilement. They would have had to risk those things to distinguish who this man was and what was actually happening. But here's the thing, Jesus ultimately doesn't say why they passed by because ultimately it doesn't matter. Self-protection, fear, apathy, they're never excuses for passing by like this. They're, they're just indicators that reveal something in the heart. Which is where Jesus is gonna go as he continues the story. Verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. No one was expecting this. A priest, a Levite, the natural expectation for everyone listening would have been a common Israelite. Priest, Levite, common Israelite, not a Samaritan. The Samaritans were like Newman on Seinfeld. There was a, a bitter enmity, a bitter hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. See, back in 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire took the northern tribes of Israel into captivity. What they did was they took the top 1% to 2% of the people in the northern tribes and brought them into Assyria. And then the Assyrian Empire moved into that region in Israel and the people began to intermarry. They stayed. And over the course of time, the culture changed, the people changed, the religion changed. So at this point in the story, the Samaritans, they're a, a blended people who descended from the Israelites but who intermarried with those of the Assyrian Empire and generations have gone on. They had begun to reject the teaching, the full teaching of the Old Testament 
They only recognized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They refused to recognize David's Davidic kingship and the temple in Israel and their requirements to go into the temple in Jerusalem. They built their own temple in Samaria because it was in the region of Samaria where God's people first covenanted with God. So they built their own temple there. But in the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a A group of Jewish soldiers went and destroyed that Samaritan temple in Samaria. There was just massive enmity between these people. It could have been anybody, but not a Samaritan. Everyone listening to the story would have dropped their jaws at this point. And Jesus says it's when this Samaritan saw this man, he had compassion on him. When he saw him, he he didn't see a problem that he had to avoid. He saw a person. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. The compassion that we've been looking at week after week as we've seen how Jesus sees people And the most common emotion associated with Jesus is this compassion. He he had no cultural or legal obligation to help this man. But he saw him and he had compassion. And he acted. Listen to what happens. Verse 34, he, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on the man oil and wine. That's old school first aid. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you end up spending, I will repay you when I come back. And you've got to just close your eyes if you have to. You've got to take this story in. You've got to feel the scandal of this story if you're going to understand it in its context. This Samaritan may be on his way home from business dealings in Jerusalem, maybe on his way to a, a business meeting somewhere else. He, he risks his own physical well-being, his own danger to help this man. He risks his own delay to his own schedule. He spends his own oil, his own wine. He gives up his own ride. And he walks into a Jewish town in Jericho, this Samaritan with a half-dead, beaten, naked Jewish man on his donkey. You want to get real personal with this? You you really want to feel this? Imagine someone who looks like me. You can all see me because we're filming it. Light skin, blue eyes, light hair, big beard, often wearing a cap with a Tennessee flag on it because it's where I'm from. Imagine someone like me in a big pickup truck with a white robe rolled up in the front seat, pulling into Providence Park or Essex Village or Creighton Court on a busy Saturday afternoon with a beaten within an inch of his life, naked black man in the bed of my pickup truck. That is the scene that these people are hearing as Jesus paints this story. This Samaritan comes into Jericho and takes this man to an inn. He pays for this man to stay in that inn, not just for that night, but for as long as it will take for his wounds to heal leaving the equivalent of about $300, about two weeks worth of money with the innkeeper. This guy was beaten so bad, there were probably bones that needed to mend and heal. It probably wasn't just bruises and cuts and scrapes. He needed to heal. He needed time. And this Samaritan gives this man the money to take care of him in that time. And you've got to understand this. In those days, there were no bankruptcy laws to protect people who couldn't pay their debt. So if this injured man is there in the innkeeper, in the inn for two weeks, and he doesn't have any money because he was robbed, doesn't even have his own clothes as a, as, a, as a trade because he's naked, if he has to stay in that inn for two weeks to recover and he doesn't have the money to pay for it, do you know what someone would have to do if they couldn't pay their debt? 
they'd have to sell themselves in exchange for their debt to their creditor as a slave. This beaten man had no collateral, no money. He needed long-term healing, and he's there lying in a bed at the mercy of the innkeeper and a Samaritan. And Jesus says this Samaritan takes on the long-term responsibility for this man, saving him from death on the side of the road and slavery at his own expense. What does the Samaritan get in return? He gets the hassle, the cost, the risk, and the beaten man gets safety in life. The Samaritan substituted his time and his money and his personal well-being for someone else's flourishing, whether he felt like that person deserved what they had received or not. Read the story in its context. Go in piece by piece. This Samaritan literally reverses the actions of the robbery. The thieves steal from this man. They beat him. They leave him to die, and they abandon him not to return. This Samaritan sees him cares for him, pays for him, promises to return and not abandon him. He helped him, and his help turned into a redeeming work, rescuing him not just from certain death, but from slavery. See, Jesus is teaching this lawyer the law, the law in all of its fullness. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34 says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you too were strangers in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord your God, rescued you. Grace-driven love. Belonging. Stranger by the grace of God becoming neighbor. So Jesus, after tells, he tells the story, he finally gets around to answering the man's question and he does it with his own question again. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer looked at Jesus and he couldn't even bring himself to get the word out of his mouth. So much self-righteousness and pride could not even get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. And so he says, the one who showed him mercy. But what you've got to see, the context that keeps this story from becoming the pretext for your favorite proof text is that Jesus just turned the entire focus of the conversation inside out. The self-justification that moved this lawyer to ask Jesus, who do I have to love? So that all along you and I are are listening to the story and obviously the neighbor in the story is the beaten man. This is who you have to love. Did you hear that in asking him this follow-up question, Jesus flipped the script entirely? Jesus asked this man, what kind of neighbor are you? This second question isn't about the beaten man at all. Jesus says, look at the ones who saw him. Who proved to be a neighbor? Here here we're going to talk about neighbor. Look at the ones who saw him. Who proved to be the neighbor? The Samaritan proved to be the neighbor. And the lawyer even agreed And in flipping the script like this, Jesus is going right after his heart. The question is what kind of neighbor are you? Not what's the minimal bar of love that I have to achieve to get in. You see, the lawyer can quote the law all day long. He can quote the text all day, but he's he's not yet been captured by grace. Jesus tells this story to flip the script and to get down to his heart and to take it from who do I have to love to what kind of neighbor am I? 
how can I become the kind of person whose compassion pays no heed to someone's status? You realize the question about what kind of man is dying in the story is not even there anymore. The whole focus is on what kind of people are passing by. Who proved to be the neighbor? What kind of person are you? The priest, the Levite, the religious leaders, this lawyer standing in front of Jesus. They quote the Shema twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. The priest and the Levite in the story, they had already quoted the Shema that morning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And bookended between those confessions, they show the emptiness and the shallowness of their faith. As they see this man and pass him by, it's not producing the fruit of love. So Jesus looks at this lawyer and he says, you, go and do likewise. And so the story, right, it's all about, hey, you, go go be like the good Samaritan, right? Well, if you read the text outside of its context and the natural pretext for the proof text is right there. This is how we use the Bible on each other and on our kids, These truths are there, but they are crushing to the soul if they're just moral instruction without the fullness of truth and grace. Friends, the big E on the eye chart with this text is that it's first and foremost a gospel story, not a morality story. Remember, the story is ultimately told in the larger context of a response to a question about eternal life, a vertical question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? When Jesus says, go and do likewise, it's it's not a command now for you to go and be nice like this person in the story. It's an answer to the first question that reveals to the heart, no longer in the mind, but now it's in the heart, reveals to the heart just how far from being this man we are. It's just like the earlier answer when Jesus said, oh, you answered it correctly, just go do that. This go and do likewise is in the same vein. If you want to inherit it, if you want to do what's necessary, then just go do that. But the context saves us from a proof text. And it shows us the only hope we have of actually becoming people who love like Jesus. It's right here. It's here in the story. We see the fullness of the gospel and We can begin to reclaim this parable for what Jesus meant it to be, a story about who we are and who he is, a a gospel story, not a morality lesson. You see, the focus that Jesus was trying to shift here at the end of this interaction is not for the lawyer or for you and I to focus as we read the story on how much we're like the priest and how much we're like the Levite and how much harder we have to work to be like the Good Samaritan. Jesus was showing in this story that you and I can never meet the perfect requirement of the law. Even those who have dedicated themselves and whose professional job it is, they can't do it. The focus that Jesus is shifting here is is for you and I to see, just as he wants this lawyer to see, that we're actually the beaten man left for dead on the side of the road. Jesus, in his last question to the lawyer, he he moved him and he moves us out of the position of the religious leaders and into the position of the man on the side of the road in desperate need of rescue. Rescue by one who owed us nothing whom we were antagonistic to and who takes upon himself the entire cost of our redemption and healing. You see, this lawyer, he, he had no idea in the moment that he was standing and speaking and locking eyes with the true good neighbor that this Samaritan just points to. That's why Paul would say God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were dead in sin and trespasses, Christ Jesus died for us on the cross. We were left for dead in our sin. But Jesus saw us. He had compassion on us. And he acted for his glory and our good. And he healed us. And he paid our debts by his grace. 
And he gives us what we did. He gives us what we didn't deserve. What he didn't owe us. And what we could never earn. He took the wages of our sin upon himself on the cross. And he loved us not because of what we were like. It's not because we were so great. It's not because we were part of a particular group. He loved us not because of what we were like, but because what he's like. He's the one who rescues us from eternal death and pays the price for our sin in full, saving us from slavery to sin and death at the total cost to himself. You see, it's only as you and I see Jesus clearly here, our great rescuer, our good Samaritan, and experience for ourselves his radical grace that you and I could have ever, ever, ever in this life have any true hope of reflecting this grace to others. That's the only way. This isn't a morality story about trying hard to be like this person. Until you have experienced the radical neighboring grace of Jesus, you and I have no hope of this. The law, it it can't produce this kind of compassion in you to love other people like this. It only comes as you and I continue to experience God's compassion and grace for us. As you enjoy again the fact that you were seen by Jesus. And you continue to experience his compassion for you. The law is never meant to produce this kind of compassion. Jesus' command to go and do likewise, it, it directs our hearts to a dependency on him. The picture of compassion and the picture of love and mercy that Jesus paints in this story is a crushing example apart from his grace towards us and his spirit alive within us. You see, friends, you and I need to see what Jesus did at the cost of his own life to save us because it's only then that our hearts can be humbled to receive the mercy of God that is offered to us in Jesus. And then, then, by the power of his spirit in us, we are able to go and do likewise in love for God and other people. That's the only way it works. Friends, is. As you and I continue to see Jesus on a day in and day out basis, enjoy the compassion of his grace, we're anchoring our identity in him. And here's the thing. Understanding who we are by his grace and his love. Anchoring our identity of heart in who we are by the grace of God to us in Jesus. This is what changes how we see people. People haven't become different. You have. What shapes the way you see them and respond to them is not their identity. However they want to define that. What shapes how you see them and how you respond to them is your identity. The neighbor you are by the grace of God empowered by Christ in you, your hope of glory. You see, it's only as you and I walk in our identity by the grace of God, as you and I continue to see and reflect Jesus, that you and I will be able to see the ones that God puts on our path and reflect something of his sacrificial compassion to them who are hurting and ignored in need of mercy and grace. All the things that would keep us from stopping. Self-protection and fear, apathy and judgment. All of those things are overcome in the heart by the neighboring grace of God and the power of his spirit alive in us. We all have opportunities to show compassion and love and we all have self-justifying excuses for not loving others. 
whether or not somewhere in your mind you see someone and your heart begins to say, well, they just brought this on themselves. Well, let me remind you, did Jesus not love you when you were the one who brought your own misery on yourself? Should you not now love others the same way by which you have been loved by him? It's only as the neighboring grace of Jesus experienced in your heart becomes alive and real as you see him that you and I are able to reflect something of the same thing to a world around us. It's only as we enjoy the neighboring grace of God ourselves that the self-justifying excuses for not loving others can finally be put to death. Friends, consider just for a moment, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, what, what keeps you from loving others with the compassion of Christ? Name those things so that you might turn from those things as you turn again to see Jesus, your true good neighbor, neighboring you. As we do that, you and I, as his people, travel down the path, not from Jerusalem to Jericho, but the path of the good works that God prepared beforehand for you and I to walk in. And the people that God puts on that path that we walk together are real people with real stories and they become divine calls to us, an opportunity for us to be who we are in him. Friends, let's not miss our opportunity to reflect the neighboring grace of God that has so captured our hearts. Let's not miss our opportunities to reflect his grace and compassion to those that he puts in our path. Friends, let me pray for us this morning as we prepare together to pray and respond to God's word. Father, we pray this morning that you would do the work that only you could do by your Holy Spirit and you would give us the experience of grace that Jesus spoke about in this parable. The experience of grace that this lawyer needed to have. Lord, this morning in some situations you need to give us a deeper experience of the grace we have already tasted and in other cases you need to give us an experience of a grace we've not yet had. And we pray this morning that you would do that very work by your spirit so we can truly walk in the steps of the one who came not not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's in his name that I pray these things and ask these things for his glory and for our joy. Amen. I love you guys and I pray that you enjoy the richness of God's neighboring compassion and grace to you and that God would do by his spirit the work that only he can do and would enable us as his people to reflect something of his grace and compassion to the world around us. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.